Presents The Rick Walker Show. Defrag your mind. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rick Walker. Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Lots of stuff for you tonight. Uh, resolution passed by the United Nations regarding Gaza. Some say it's uh, pretty watered down. We'll tell you what's happened there. Uh, the Trudeau government, massive debt. The dynamic debt duo, Christian Freeland to Justin Trudeau. We'll talk more about that. EVs, electric vehicles, major concerns bubbling to the surface as the government continues to push their electrification of the auto industry. Um, we'll tell you why it's not working out every day, more and more concerns as the government continues to dump billions of dollars into this, uh, this initiative. Uh, what else do we have for you? Uh, Republicans pushing back 
on this effort by the Democrats to use lawfare to keep Donald Trump off the ballot heading into the 2024 presidential election. And Trudeau, he's going to be heading to, well, he's heading off on a, a sunny Christmas vacation. And he will be joined by his estranged wife. We'll explain. But most important tonight, I think, is shortly we will be joined by Sean Buckley from the National Citizens Inquiry. As promised, finally, we got everything straightened out. We got connected. And he'll join us here on the program to talk about the final report from the NCI that addresses the government's response to the pandemic. What they need, what, you know, it really focuses on all the things that were major issues, areas of concern. Also provides many recommendations. The report far better than I ever could have imagined. 5,600 plus pages of documents and transcripts from the inquiry itself, from government uh, sources, uh, outside sources, experts, doctors, scientists. It's all laid out in what is probably the most extensive, most comprehensive analysis with sworn testimony into any government response anywhere in the world. It's probably the best archive of documented materials with real credibility behind it anywhere in the world with regard to what happened during the pandemic. And it isn't over yet. Sean Buckley will share his thoughts and his, um, his assessment of the final report itself. And we will talk about where we go from here. So that will be vitally important for all of us. That is, um, that's the highlight coming up later on in the broadcast tonight. So stick with me. We're just, uh, just getting the ball rolling here. It's time to get the show on the road. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow may be too late. Too late, too late, too late. Maverick News. The world is watching.
Jingle bells. Trudeau smells. Biden laid an egg. Klaus Schwab's deal has no appeal. But tomorrow is a brand new day. Hey everyone. Have a merry maverick Christmas. And a magnificent new year. Okay, let's get started with some serious stuff now. Uh, but Merry Christmas, everybody. It is that time of the year. And um, I'm all alone. My wife left. She went to my parents. Yeah. Because my daughter's birthday is this time of year, too. So she went up there to go pick my daughter up. Everybody's starting to get together. That's what happens this time of year. So I hope that you guys are all having a great Christmas, pre-Christmas time. And I hope that everybody has a fantastic Christmas this year. We deserve it, man. It's been one heck of a year, one heck of, uh, one heck of a three or four years. It's been pretty crazy. And... I think we, all our hearts are going out right now to the people, both in Israel and in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, in uh, in that part of the world where war continues to rage, and in Ukraine, and in Russia, and all around the world where people are living, trying to live in war zones. And in areas that uh, are under extreme economic stress. Well, today, the United Nations did pass a resolution on aid deliveries to Gaza. It's being called a, a watered-down resolution. It calls for an immediate speeding up of deliveries into Gaza. But it does not have the uh, did not contain the original call for an urgent suspension of hostilities between Israel and Hamas. So this was um, a vote in the 15 member Security Council. It was 13 to zero. The United States and Russia both abstained from the vote. As you know, previously, the United States had vetoed. The um, the proposal, which contained a Russian amendment that would have restored the call to immediately suspend hostilities, 
or I should say that Russia had tried to add an amendment and the United States vetoed that. The vote was 10 countries in favor, the U.S. against and four abstentions. So the final vote, U.S. abstention avoided a second American veto of the Gaza resolution, which comes following the surprise October 7th attacks on Israel. And a lot of people breathing a sigh of relief that at least they've been able to get this far. And with that, we're going to take you now to the United Nations for a joint statement on this resolution. And then I think we're also going to be able to pick up the... Um, Also a statement shortly from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. So let's uh, let's take you to the United Nations now for this joint statement. Here we go. We won't keep you long. I know we've kept you waiting days on end for the vote that didn't happen, but finally did. It was the Christmas miracle we were all hoping for, which was to send a positive signal to the people on the ground in Gaza who are suffering under such unbearable circumstances that the council is engaged 24 seven on trying to alleviate that suffering. And that is why we've all in our different capacities and I thank each and every person here who has contributed in this group, but in particular, the ambassador of Egypt, uh, Ambassador Sama, and in particular, Dr. Riyadh, the ambassador of Palestine for the immense support behind the scenes into trying to adopt and achieve a resolution that has impact on the ground uh, for the people who need it the most. Last week, the UAE uh, took a number of Security Council members, both current and incoming, to the Rafah border crossing because often we sit in these rooms and we negotiate text endlessly without understanding sometimes the full implications of what is happening on ground. And I think that trip facilitated by the government of Egypt where we saw so much evidence of that suffering, so many thousands of trucks that were not able to go into Gaza, despite the fact that Gazans today are classified, half of the population is starving, and that famine is a very real possibility in Gaza as we go into our Christmas celebrations and holiday and festive season celebrations. So keeping people at the forefront of our work is when the council does its best diplomacy. And although the situation is still bleak uh, and dark, I hope this is a glimmer of hope uh, ahead that we can unite uh, both as an Islamic and Arab group, but also in the Security Council to try and deliver outcomes that are actionable, operationalable, and mean something to people on the ground. And I know other speakers have mentioned what this resolution does. I know you've read it several iterations of it. I'm often amazed how often I see it in the press before I've even distributed it to the council members, so well done you. Um, but I think this resolution really does have key uh, aspects that are going to putting a firm UN presence on the ground in the form of a mechanism with appointing a special coordinator to oversee those efforts, with calling on all parties to respect international humanitarian law, with scaling up humanitarian aid into Gaza uh, and expanding the access routes to that aid, uh, and in calling for the first time 
in a council document for a cessation of hostilities. This is important language, uh, and we will continue to build on that language. So uh, maybe my colleagues would like to say a few words, and perhaps you'd like to ask a question, yeah. Council diplomacy isn't always what you uh, want, but what you can get. Do you feel like you got enough? And what's the next step if not? I think, uh, again, putting people on the ground uh, first and foremost in mind, it would be really easy just to go for rhetorical declarations and end without consensus where we adopt something. And that doesn't help people on the ground. So I feel that what we have done will have impact, will save lives on the ground, and again, as I said in the council, I have to thank uh, the United States for their close collaboration, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield for her close collaboration in trying to achieve that outcome. We had the goal of saving lives on the ground in mind. Of course, it was not a perfect resolution. Of course, everyone in this group has called for a permanent ceasefire, and we support uh, what we put forward in the General Assembly that had 153 votes in favor for that ceasefire. And the UAE did submit that resolution less than 10 days ago, and it was, it was not adopted. So we can go for declarations in the council, or we can try and have impact on the ground for people who need it the most. Civilians in Gaza are dying because of the war. Uh, 20,000, 60% women and children, that is a fact. It's also a fact that several thousand more will die, as predicted by UN agencies, from lack of food, lack of water, lack of access to basic medical supplies. People are dying from infections. There is widespread spread disease. And so when we went to the Rafah border and we called for a code red moment as we listened to the UN officials on ground, I think that has led into the discussions here today, which led to an outcome. But it's not perfect. It's diplomacy. Ambassador, you've spoken about widespread support for actions such like this outside the council. Can you talk us through not opening this resolution up to co-sponsors? Obviously, the first iteration had a lot of co-sponsors, which shows that there was a lot of widespread member support and they wanted to publicly continue that support. What was the discussion around not opening it up to co-sponsors, this particular resolution? Absolutely. So I'd like to say that this resolution, the genesis, was a mandate from the ministerial meeting in Riyadh uh, in Saudi Arabia in November to try and bring a humanitarian resolution to the Security Council and there was a lot of iterations of that work uh, and we opened it for co-sponsorship to the resolution we put in blue on Friday evening which achieved 83 or 82 co-sponsors I believe which is very high for a council resolution on, of a humanitarian nature and it shows the support. We did not open the resolution we put into blue for co-sponsorship simply because the negotiations were so last minute so complicated. Uh, there was a lot of different exchange of views. You saw us meet here in the council several times and in close consultation. As Ambassador Greenfield said, there was numerous phone calls, five in the morning, midnight. And the, this resolution went into blue this morning, I believe at 9 a.m. Uh, so to go through the co-sponsorship, and by the way, the SCAD e-delegate sponsorship system is complicated. And so to go to open it up didn't feel necessary. I think the resolution before was a clear signal. I think the General Assembly ceasefire resolution is a clear signal. Uh, and I think today's adoption with 13 votes in favor is a clear signal. And now we will all follow up on implementation. This creates a reporting structure to the Security Council of what is going into Gaza and what is not going into Gaza. And there is accountability in that. Thank you. Okay, and with that, let's, um, let's go over and pick up the um, remarks from the uh, UN Secretary General. I'll pick him up now. Hang on. Stay with me. We're connecting the feed. 
And here we go. Over the last weeks and days, there has been no significant change in the way the war has been unfolding in Gaza. There is no effective protection of civilians. Intense Israeli bombardment and ground operations continue. More than 20,000 Palestinians have reportedly been killed, the vast majority women and children. Meanwhile, Hamas and other Palestinian factions continue to fire rockets from Gaza into Israel. Some 1.9 million people, 85% of Gaza population, have been forced from their homes. The health system is on its knees. Hospitals in the south are dealing with at least three times their capacity, and in the north, they are barely operational. One colleague described the deathly silence of a hospital with no medication or treatment for its sick and injured patients. According to the World Food Programme, widespread famine looms. More than half a million people, a quarter of the population, are facing what experts classify as catastrophic levels of hunger. Four out of five of the angriest people anywhere in the world are in Gaza. And clean water is at a trickle. UNICEF found that displaced children in the south have access to just 10% of the water they need. In these desperate conditions, it is little wonder that many people cannot wait for humanitarian distributions and are grabbing whatever they can from aid trucks. As I warned, public order is at risk of breaking down. Humanitarian veterans who have served in war zones and disasters around the world, people who have seen everything, tell me they have seen nothing like what they see today in Gaza. Israel began its military operation in response to the horrific terror attacks launched by Hamas on 7 October. And nothing can possibly justify those attacks or the brutal abduction of some 250 hostages. And I repeat my call for all remaining hostages to be released immediately and unconditionally. And nothing can justify the continued fire of rockets from Gaza at civilian targets in Israel or the use of civilians as human shields. But at the same time, these violations of international humanitarian law can never justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people, and they do not free Israel from its own obligations under international law. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, Many people are measuring the effectiveness of the humanitarian operation in Gaza based on the number of trucks from the Egyptian Red Crescent, the UN, and other partners that are allowed to unload aid across the border. This is a mistake. The real problem is that the way Israel is conducting this offensive is creating massive obstacles to the distribution of humanitarian aid inside Gaza. An effective aid operation in Gaza requires security, staff who can work in safety, 
logistical capacity and the resumption of commercial activity. These four elements do not exist. First, security. We are providing aid in a war zone. The intense Israeli bombardment and active combat in densely populated urban areas throughout Gaza threaten the lives of civilians and humanitarian aid workers alike. We waited 71 days for Israel finally to allow aid to enter Gaza via the Kerem Shalom crossing. And the crossing was then hit while eight trucks were in the area. Second, the humanitarian operation requires staff who can live and work in safety. 136 of our colleagues in Gaza have been killed in 75 days, something we have never seen in the history of the United Nations. Nowhere is safe in Gaza. I honor the women and men who have made the ultimate sacrifice and I pay tribute to the thousands of humanitarian aid workers who are risking their health and lives in Gaza, even as I speak. Most of our staff have been forced from their homes. All of them spend hours each day simply struggling to survive and to support their families. It is a miracle that they have been able to continue working under these conditions. And yet, those same colleagues are expanding humanitarian operations in southern Gaza to support people living there while trying to assist the flood of displaced people who arrive from the north with nothing. And they are currently providing aid in Rafa, Western Canyonis, Deir El Bela, and Nuzerat in the south and doing their best to reach the north despite huge challenges, namely security. In these appalling conditions, they can only meet a fraction of the needs. Third, logistics. Every truck that arrives at Karem Shalom and Rafa must be unloaded and its cargo reloaded for distribution across Gaza. We ourselves have a limited and insufficient number of trucks available for these. Many of our vehicles and trucks were destroyed or left behind following our forced hurried evacuation from the north. But the Israeli authorities have not allowed any additional trucks to operate in Gaza. And this is massively hampering the aid operation. And delivering in the north is extremely dangerous due to active conflict, unexploded ordnance and heavily damaged roads. Everywhere, Frequent communication blackouts make it virtually impossible to coordinate the distribution of aid and to let people know how to access it. And fourth and finally, the resumption of commercial activities is essential. Shelves are empty, wallets are empty, stomachs are empty, just when bakeries operating in the whole of Gaza. And I urge the Israeli authorities to lift restrictions on commercial activity immediately. We are ready to scale up our cash grant support to vulnerable families, the most effective form of humanitarian aid. But in Gaza, there is very little to buy. So ladies and gentlemen of the media, in the circumstances I've just described, a humanitarian ceasefire is the only way to begin to meet the desperate needs of people in Gaza 
and end their ongoing nightmare. I hope that today's Security Council resolution may help that finally to happen, but much more is needed immediately. Looking at the longer term, I'm extremely disappointed by comment by senior Israeli officials that put the two-state solution into question. As difficult as it might appear today, the two-state solution in line with UN resolutions, international law and previous agreements is the only path to sustainable peace. Any suggestion otherwise denies human rights, dignity and hope to the Palestinian people, fueling rage that reverberates far beyond Gaza. It also denies a safe future for Israel. The spillover is already happening. The occupied West Bank is at boiling point. Daily exchanges of fire across the blue line between Lebanon and Israel pose a grave risk to regional stability. Attacks and threats to shipping on the Red Sea by the Houthis in Yemen are impacting shipping with the potential to affect the global supply chains. And beyond the immediate region, the conflict is polarizing communities, feeding hate speech and fueling extremism. All this poses a significant and growing threat to global peace and security. As the conflict intensifies and the horror grows, we will continue to do our part. We will not give up. But at the same time, it is imperative that international communities speak with one voice for peace, for the protection of civilians, for an end to suffering, and for a commitment to the two-state solution backed with action. Thank you. Maverick News. The world is watching. The whole world is watching, and we are in an information war. And coming off the tail end of that story, I just wanted to highlight something else that was sent to me today. And this shows the impact, both the impact of the information war and the, um, how shall I put this, the snowball effect that the information war feeds upon and grows with. Um, what am I getting at? This is a, a shot of a television screen where a news anchor makes a false statement about how the current war, in its current context, how this war between Israel and Hamas started. Listen to what is said in this clip. Carefully. Protesting at the Prime Minister's housing announcement in Toronto today, Free Free Palestine is what they were showing. If you couldn't hear that, that's uh, just the latest protest taking place in Canada since Israel started the 
Hamas war. The prime minister addressed the fallout here at home today. Have a listen. Administrators could be heard protesting Listen to it again. Prime Minister's housing announcement in Toronto today. Free, free Palestine is what they were shouting. If you couldn't hear that, that's uh, just the latest protest taking place in Canada since Israel started the Hamas war. The Prime Minister addressed the fallout here at home today. So the point is that uh, this is a Canadian newscast. Israel didn't start the war. It This war started technically on October 7th because of the attack on Israel by Hamas. But you see how the rhetoric, the information war has such an impact. Even a news anchor makes that statement. Now, the question is, was that statement made because the the anchor was confused and wasn't quite thinking straight or was that a statement that was made intentionally to reinforce the inform the information distortion that is going on as part of the information war was that some soft propaganda that was fed out there to make people think in in those terms and even if you, he might argue, I don't know what, what the situation was there. I mean, do you, do you see how it then becomes a matter of context and, well, Israel is responsible for the war because they're the occupiers. It, it depends on your perspective. But technically, the war, it was Hamas waging war, an act of war against Israel. And I would argue that the way that they conducted that raid was in itself a war crime, an act of war and a war crime. And then on the other side, the response that we're getting from Israel against Hamas and into the Gaza Strip, also we're seeing I would say war crimes being committed that way as well. But the narrative is important. Words are important. It's important to keep facts straight. And as you can see, that mainstream media report shifting, shifting all the blame to Israel. Um, I, and I'm just saying that it is not accurate. The question is, is that report a result of the way information propaganda has affected the thinking of the people in that newsroom? Or is it that newsroom trying to twist the facts in order to suit a particular narrative coming from their political perspective? I'll let you be the judge, but that is not an accurate statement. Simple as that, just not accurate. And uh, you can have your opinion one way or another on it, I guess. But uh, that that is a fact. Um, It's a fact that that's not the fact. And I think now more than ever, we need factual reports. What is also a fact is that uh, the federal government in Canada has recorded a massive 
budgetary deficit of $15.1 billion just between April and October. $7 billion of that alone was just in October. So the finance department has uh, un unveiled or released these new numbers as part of its monthly monitor of, of the fiscal condition of uh, the financial condition of the country. And they say in this newest report that the deficit between April and October compared with a deficit of $0.2 billion the previous year. Now, revenues were up a little bit, I guess, 1.2%, uh, but nowhere near enough to offset the huge budgetary deficit that was incurred just between that period. That's not even the whole debt for the year. That's just between April and October. Program expenses, excluding net actuarial costs, were up $11.8 billion, or 5.4%, from the same period a year earlier. Spending across all categories, every category, increased. Debt charges, this is interest payments, up $7.5 billion, or 38.1%, mostly because of higher interest rates, but partly it was offset by um, some lower prices for consumer goods and uh, and bond returns. Um, this is, in my estimation, a financial disaster. It's it should be a huge warning sign. Big red flags should be going up for everyone. This is financial danger zone. The money is going away too fast, far faster than it's coming in. And it's, um, it's also largely due to the electrification of the auto industry, which is a fool's errand so far, not working out the way that people had... Uh, well, the way the government had been planning. We'll get into that more in a moment. But this is also something that needs to be thrown right back to the desk of Canada's finance minister, Christian Freeland. And we ran a portion of this clip from her last night. I'm going to rerun this because it's pretty clear that Justin Trudeau and his finance minister, Christian Freeland, simply do not get it. They are out of touch, folks in my view, with ordinary Canadians, especially right now. Here it is the Christmas season. This is Christian Freeland, again in an interview, being asked about the rising debt and inflation, which is eroding people's purchasing power. A lot of people simply having trouble putting food on the table this Christmas, paying the rent, just covering their, their essential bills. And what does she What's her response to this question about rising inflation, rising rising cost of living? She says, well, thank goodness for food banks. Thank goodness for the food bank down the street for me. So we have a finance minister who essentially is grateful that there are food banks out there to bail out the government, in a sense, because 
her economic policies, the economic policies of Justin Trudeau, this inflationary spending that they've embarked upon is simply not working. And here she is speaking about it again. It's heartbreaking that we have food banks in Canada, and it's really heartbreaking um, to see that people really need them. So I am grateful to the really amazing people at the Church of the Messiah who have worked so hard to have a food bank and to support our community. And um, it really, it kills me that that's something that they need to do, that we need to do. Yeah, a national report was released recently that the, the numbers are up at record numbers. There's people who are employed who are using it to, to buy things like milk and eggs because it's just expensive. Exactly. She is the finance minister. Why don't you do something about it? It's your policies that have impoverished people. It's your policy. That is what I said last night, and I'll say it again tonight. It The responsibility for this goes right back to her and to Justin Trudeau. This report on the public debt, it just further reinforces what I was talking about last night. This government... is letting the people down. They're selling the people down this down the river. They are rolling the dice on this plan to electrify the auto industry. They're gutting the auto industry. That's what they're doing. The auto industry for a long time has been one of the main engines driving the economy. And now they're driving the entire industry into the ground with a centrally planned economy, a centrally planned auto industry that is leading to austerity. While they sit there and tell people that they're bailing us all out with these subsidies, with the CERB program during the pandemic, telling everybody that there's going to be, in one way or another, government support and even talking about bringing in possibly universal basic income. These are all lies. Because it's leading to rationing of health care. It's leading to a lower standard of living. It is leading to Massive dependence on government by the population because they are making people dependent on government. That is the slavery that we all fear. The massive money printing, the massive redistribution of wealth in this way is really a tax on you, us. It's a transfer of wealth from us to big corporations, to big companies, which can be owned, are owned by shareholders, but disproportionately it's going to a certain group of people nearer the top who are part of a more elite crowd. I mean, there's pension money in there and the middle class. We've got our savings wrapped up in that as well. But this idea that the government is going to bail us all out 
with quantitative easing, money printing, inflationary spending, investing in these industries, it's it's just misguided. And we're seeing the results of that already in the EV industry. What what am I talking about? I'm talking about how they're they've just started and it's already falling apart. So unless they get a real handle on it and get a handle on the technology as well, then we're all going to be in for a heap of trouble. The Canadian economy has been teetering on the edge of a severe recession, maybe even a depression. I would argue we've been in a recession for quite a while now, probably at least a year. Technically, they won't admit it because it depends on how they report on the economic data. But we are there. Look at the prices in the supermarkets. And she doesn't know how to respond in that interview because the truth is too embarrassing to her and Justin. And it's a pill that's too bitter for people to swallow, especially at this time of year. Too many people are suffering out there. You know... Danielle Smith was uh, speaking about this. You know, I talk about how this centrally planned economy, this hi- this hyper-socialism that we are now living under, the way that this, this centrally planned economy is leading to rationing. You know, I won't tell you why. I have to go for a test, just a, a minor thing, really, a medical test. It... I have no, still no family doctor here. I had, and this is, I'm not complaining. I'm just giving you an example of how this system is letting people down. And this is just my personal experience. So I have to, sh- don't, don't have to share anybody else's confidential medical information. But um, I, I need to get an ultrasound done. So no family doctor. The only place to go is a walk in clinic. So down I go to the walk in clinic. You have to wait. For a long time, because in my my hometown, because there's only one, one walk-in clinic left. All the other ones have closed. It's a telehealth. You don't even get to see a doctor in person. So you're speaking to someone over a video monitor with a nurse in the room. And then he gives the, you know, writes out the requisition for an ultrasound just to get something checked. And uh, I have to go to another place. I check in and I have to make an appointment. They can't, they can't do it. It's going to be over a month just to get an ultrasound done. Now, if someone's really sick, let's say somebody has cancer and they need an ultrasound done. Time is of the essence over a month just to wait because the, the, the budget is shot. There isn't enough capacity in the system. There aren't. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough clinics. We don't have enough equipment. We don't have enough funding. We don't have enough. And so everyone is waiting. Everyone's on the waiting list. That's what socialized medicine is all about. It's about waiting and waiting and waiting. If someone's really sick right now, and there's a backlog as well in the system because of the pandemic, a lot of surgeries, a lot of tests were canceled. Everybody's getting pushed back. It takes a long time to get tests done. 
You want to know why you're seeing excess deaths? That's one of the reasons, just one of the reasons. It's because people were not getting, and I'm just making this statement out of hand without real data to back this up. So this is just my opinion. But I don't think you're going to have to look very long or hard at the numbers to come to the realization that a lot of people died after the pandemic simply because they didn't get proper care during the pandemic. People were not given access to proper testing. They had their surgeries canceled. And now, even now, with all the immigration coming in, all the additional people, all the additional stresses on the healthcare system, people are waiting longer than ever just to get simple tests done. And if you're really sick and you need urgent care, good luck. Get in line and hope for the best because it's going to be months, maybe even a year or two before you get the surgery that you need for a lot of these ailments. Now, if your doctor is really concerned, he might be able to, you know, write stat on the order and get you pushed up. But man, I'm telling you, a lot of people are going to fall through the cracks because they're not going to get timely care. It's called rationing. If you give things away, don't fund things properly. The only way the government can control price or control the system is to, if, if you've got increasing demand, the only other mechanism you have to control the economic side or the economic equation of the healthcare system is to, to, to regulate supply. That means rationing. Limit the amount that is available to people. Yeah, it's universal. Yeah, they'll give it to you almost for free. But they're only going to give away so much of it at a time. So you have to get in, in queue and, and hope for the best. And it's not free. It is not free. I had to pay a fee at the walk-in clinic because even there, the provincial health program no longer covers walk-in clinic visits. So there's a user fee now when you walk in the door. And they're now extending social, a socialized system to dental care in a, in a larger way. And I'm going to tell you right now, the dental, the, the, the dental system actually was working in a far superior manner to the overall healthcare system in this province and I would say in this country. And now that they're socializing it, nationalizing it on a greater scale, you're going to see a deterioration of service overall, rising costs, and you're going to end up seeing rationing. The same thing is happening in the auto industry. When General Motors went bankrupt, we saw the government intervene, essentially nationalize that corporation by taking it over with government grants. By injecting government money into it, they were able to assert control over the, the direction of that company, direct what kind of products they were going to produce. It was a key moment, a pivotal moment in the history of our economy because it gave the government the ability to push forward in a forceful way with the electrification of the auto industry by taking over the biggest automaker in North America. GM. And now what are we seeing? We're seeing extreme stress, uncertainty in the industry. This week in Canada, we saw, and I'm not just talking about the nationalization of the auto industry or, or GM in Canada. I'm talking about in the U.S. too. 
the government down there has injected all kinds of money into GM. And now because GM got the money, all the companies are getting free money as they push ahead with EV, the EV agenda, every company is getting government grants, billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. And yet they're still not certain because the entire thing is being subsidized at every level to everyone. It, the money being spent, I don't even think you can calculate it. It's so high. Every aspect of this is being in one way or another, subsidized by government from every nut, every bolt, every battery, every wheel, every part on every EV vehicle produced to the assembly of it, to the distribution, to the consumption at the time of purchase. There are subsidies in place for people who want to buy or are being enticed to buy an EV. And then there are subsidies in place even for companies that are involved in setting up the charging network, which is completely inadequate. We've seen even the CEO of Ford trying to drive across the United States and not finding adequate charging stations and admitting so on social media. And we ran the videos of, uh, of him while he was trying to to drive across America and was having real challenges with it. And I can tell you my personal experience with that is similar. A lot of these chargers don't even work properly. Sometimes when you go up to them, they're not being maintained properly. And I'll explain why. Here's, um, here's a company called Flow. Let me see if I can find the, the right tab here for you. Flow is a company that uh, is one of the leading charging companies in Canada. And if you go to their website, you'll see that they're trying to get more people to invest or more companies to invest in in these charging stations so that they're trying to get more people more more companies to put them in. And they're expensive. So here's uh, here's their website. And look at right the, the headline right up front. Discover the 50 to 75% subsidy for charging stations. 50 to 75% government subsidy to install a charging station. So if you're a gas station or a, maybe a municipality and you want to put chargers in at a municipal building or you, you're Tim Hortons and you want to put one in your parking lot or some in your parking lot, or it doesn't matter who you are, a car dealer maybe, and you want charging stations set up, or maybe you're, you've, you run a factory and you think you're going to put charging stations in, whatever. It could be anything. Any place that wants a charging station, the government will subsidize it to the tune of as much as 75% to put one of these things in. But I'm in the industry who. Sorry, our internet froze up there for a moment again. So I've been speaking to someone in the, uh, the industry trying to sell these charging stations. There's really no 
proper government plan for this. It's um, even though the government is subsidizing all of it, when the numbers are crunched, there's no return on the investment at this point, even with those subs with subsidies to that level. So if you pay as a company to put one of these things in at maybe a variety store or a, a restaurant or a fast food chain or wherever they go in for the person or company investing in these things, there's virtually no return on the investment. So why would anyone do it? There's no, no real reason to invest the money. You're, you're going to lose money. If it's just like a, a break even proposition at best, you're actually losing money, especially with the rate of inflation. So it makes no sense. You're not going to get the distribution there. In the last week, I've also heard other stories about a, mass, a big trucking company that in, was investing in electric transport trucks, put charging stations in, spent all this money, only to find that the, the grid is not adequate, that they couldn't pump enough electricity into their location to power the chargers. So that whole plan fell apart after the company had already invested a lot of money. There's a municipality, and I'm sorry, I, I saw the story briefly today, but it was about um, buses, electric buses being purchased by a municipality. Electric buses that don't have enough power capacity to run the heaters in the buses during the winter. So they've had to, so they come installed with diesel engines to as for heaters, diesel powered heaters on the electric bus, which makes again, zero sense at all. And then this past week we saw the, um, the, 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 the minister of environment and climate change in Canada, Stephen Guibault come out, and outline in more detail the government's plan to push ahead with banning gasoline-powered vehicles, new sales of gasoline-powered vehicles entirely by 2035. And over the course of the next number of years, they'll be phasing that in, essentially reducing availability of gasoline-powered vehicles in the marketplace slowly trying to force people to buy these electric vehicles, which have issues on the resale market because the batteries will not last past a certain point. So they have to be replaced probably after about four or five or six years. There won't be enough range left in them. They have to be replaced. And at that point, we're already seeing that the market conditions are such, the numbers the, the are such that it costs more to replace the batteries than the vehicles themselves are worth. So it makes no sense. They're going to end up in the recycling yard. If you can even recycle the batteries, and that isn't even entirely clear at this point. This whole plan is not coming together. We've got a serious, serious problem on our hands, and the government just doesn't seem to care. They're pushing ahead anyway. The, this is... It's actually insane. Here's Danielle Smith, the, the um, premier of Alberta, speaking to this very thing. Uh, this was yesterday. 
comes from the Calgary Herald. And she nails this, absolutely nails this. This is a centrally planned economy that is on this insane mission to transform an industry that is vital to the health of our economy in a way that is going to lead to rationing, just like the healthcare system, only far, far worse. Far worse. And I'll comment more on that when we come back on the other side. It's a very brief clip. People, if they want a car, they need to buy it now because we're entering into a period of rationing. There's no other way uh, around it. I, I spoke to the manufacturers and they told me the way it will work is that they will, the only way to meet those targets is to reduce the amount of gas of, of fueled elect, uh, of gas fueled vehicles that they sell. So if you only buy 2,000 vehicles in the Alberta, Alberta market, they're only going to be able to sell 8,000 gas-fired vehicles in our market. We buy 200,000 vehicles a year. And so we have to expect that what they're going to do is essentially phase out the traditional auto sector. And I wish I could do something about it, but we don't have auto manufacturing in Alberta. Um, there isn't a way for me to be able to override it. I can just warn Albertans that um, if this truly is implemented the way that they have said, by the time we get to January 15th of 2026, we'll have sold our allotment of gas-fired vehicles for that year, and you're going to be uh, sitting on a waiting list waiting your turn. So if anyone needs to buy a car, they better buy it now. Tell Basically a uh, extreme socialist or communist economy. It results in rationing. It results in people ending up on, on waiting lists for all kinds of different products, consumer goods, especially major purchases. That's where we're heading. Because the government doesn't care about profit. They don't care about uh, a sustainable industry. They're just focused singularly on one thing, the climate change, the climate change. Which I would argue is also misguided there i don't think they're looking at any of that in an accurate way at all it's insane what they are doing absolutely insane this will ultimately lead to an economic breakdown because we are not going to get the return on the investment that the government has made into these industries. They've given them all this money to retool these plants. People are not buying the vehicles. They're sitting unsold in dealer lots. People don't want them. There's the, the environment minister came out and said, Stephen Guibault said, Electric vehicles are slowly reaching price parity with gasoline-powered vehicles, but that's also a lie. Because those vehicles, the prices of those vehicles, those prices are subsidized at every level. The price you actually pay, the sticker price, represents only a fraction of what it actually costs to produce those vehicles. Which means that even as those companies, the auto companies sell these things, and in many cases, they're still losing money on them. So as they're doing all of that, there's, it's not really adding any, any growth or productivity to the economy. It's just adding to our debt. You might save the environment, which I doubt, by driving one, but you're going to kill the economy.
at the expense, really, of the middle class and the poor who are being taxed through all of this. Because the burden for this is being placed on the average person because of the massive money printing. Not on people on the other end, at the top end of this, because they own assets and they have the ability to shield themselves through investments and and the way they move their assets around. They can shield themselves from the impact of inflation and they know how to do it because they're savvy enough. This is a... This is beyond a disaster waiting to happen. This is a disaster unfolding. And you're seeing now that the mainstream media even is beginning, just beginning to wake up to this. And it may already be too late because I think in many respects, we've reached the point of no return on this because the government has invested so much and they've given the auto industry or the auto companies really no alternative. It's like, you must do this or you don't get the money. And your competitor down the road will. And we're going to regulate this in a way that prevents you from producing gasoline-powered vehicles. So you have to do this one way or another. And because they've gone this far, we're at, we're at the halfway point and it's like, well, the auto companies are sitting there saying, well, this isn't working. The dealers are complaining. There's an open letter from the auto dealers in the United States to the president saying you have to tap the brakes on this because we're sitting on too much inventory. These things are not selling. Please slow this down. And nobody is. The government's still pushing, pushing, pushing. And here's global news in Canada. How far can you go with EVs in Canada? A closer look at range and battery life. Still talking about range anxiety. A lot of these vehicles. Are now up to, you know, 200, 300, 350 kilometer range. But still not um, a perfect solution. And in the winter range is reduced. You've got serious issues with heating, as I said, with things like those buses. Here's there's the climate. Minister of uh, Climate Change and Environment, Stephen Gabot, saying the Canada should reach 85,000 EV charging stations by 2029. I don't think so. Nope. Because people are not, the, the, the places where these things are supposed to be going in, they're not. They're not. It's not happening. There's a charging station downtown in my town, right across from the police station at a Tim Hortons. There are several of these stations there, and a couple of them don't work. They haven't worked in over a year. Out of commission. Not bothering to fix them. There's no reason to. They make no money with them. And they're not used that much, so they just don't bother. They didn't bother to fix it. it just They just sit broken. It is not working out. Um, and then there's this story breaking today about a Nissan Leaf owner who needs to replace the battery in his car. Here it is here. This is the CBC mainstream media finally cluing in after helping the government push this agenda on EV vehicles. 
His electric vehicle battery died. One year later, he's still waiting for a replacement. Yeah, because that's the other thing. They talk about, you know, we're going to run out of oil. They're already running out of the, the lithium, the cobalt, the other elements that are needed to make these batteries. There's already a shortage. They can't produce them fast enough. They can't get the materials that they need to sustain the supply chain as it is. And they want to completely replace the world fleet of vehicles with electric powered cars and trucks. And it is not happening. This guy can't even get a replacement battery for one of the most popular electric vehicles on the road. One of the first, actually, to make a big splash worldwide, Nissan. No fault of the auto companies. They're doing their best to adapt to these government regulations and incentives, these government programs. So it says here he bought this leaf in 2017 to save money on gas and to take advantage of a $14,000 government rebate for electric vehicles. 14 grand tax money back so he could buy that vehicle. $14,000. It was all good. Ran well, he says. Then the main high-voltage battery needed to be replaced after the car broke down twice last year, once in November, then again a week later. Had to hire a tow truck, get it hauled to his local dealership. Now, in this case, his replacement fell under the warranty, covering 160,000 kilometers or eight years, whichever comes first. But he's still waiting for the battery to arrive a year later. Oh, yeah, we'll fix it, sir, but uh, we don't have one, and it's going to be a year. Until then, I guess you're just going to have to walk. Well, <laughs> I hope they took care of this guy, but you're getting the picture. What good is the car if you can't get a battery? I bought a flashlight at the hardware store. The battery went dead. And uh, I need a replacement, but I, I can't get one. So uh, I said, they said it'll be here in about uh, 14 months. Until then, I'm just going to be fumbling around in the dark. Uh, okay. Um, if you can't, anybody that can't see that this is a fool's errand is blind. Maybe willfully blind. I don't think the government cares. I don't think, I don't think they see it. They're just pushing ahead and they think it's just going to work out somehow. Well, I'll tell you something. If you leave it up to the free market, it will work out. But you get the government involved and it, they're going to screw it up. And they are royally. Leave it up to the people. Leave the power with the people. Let the people decide. Let the technology evolve. Maybe put some incentives in place to encourage people to do things or encourage companies to em embark on research and the development of new technologies. Maybe do it that way. Maybe, maybe, you know, nurse things along by pulling things, pulling things with incentives, 
maybe some tax breaks here, some tax breaks there to try and incentivize things and start the ball rolling to improve on battery technology. Look at improving the electrical grid. But stop forcing it down people's throats. Let the people decide. Let people choose. People ultimately will figure out what is best for them. We always do. And that's what the free market is about. It's about a whole millions of choices and decisions being made every single day. Billions. All through the economy. It's kind of like a collective mind coming together in a way that is indescribable, really, because one mind doesn't know what the other mind is doing, but there's price and supply signals that are sent out all through the system that allow us all to figure it out in whatever industry we are in. And that's what the auto industry really started out as. And now the government has seized control, and without even getting things done, they have already screwed this up. We're in so much trouble because this industry is vital to the health of the economy. Our jobs all the way up and down the line depend on this. There are so many spinoff jobs that come from the auto industry, from the guy selling hot dogs on the, you know, from the hot dog cart out in front of the auto plants to the parts companies, to the oil industry, to the healthcare system that depends on gasoline-powered ambulances, to the transportation industry, everything, every aspect of our economy, a modern, our modern economy depends on these gasoline-powered vehicles. And this assertion that we're, we're running out of oil and the planet's going to boil us all to death, we're in the, it's global boiling, bunk. Absolute bunk. Some people are getting rich off this transformation of the economy and the electrification of the auto industry. Some people are getting filthy rich off it. I know that. Because they know how to take advantage of government programs. Just like the pandemic. A whole lot of profiteering went on during that pandemic, I'll tell you that. A lot of companies selling a lot of masks and other things. And I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about that in the months and years ahead. And we'll hear more about what the government response to the pandemic was all about, and the government response to the pandemic. When we come back after this break, Sean Buckley from the National Citizens Inquiry will join us. Don't go away. This is what we've all been waiting for for quite a while. Jingle bells. Trudeau smells. Biden laid an egg. Klaus Schwab's deal has no appeal. But tomorrow is a brand new day. Hey everyone. Have a merry maverick Christmas. And a magnificent new year. The New World Order. 
Government Overreach The Great Reset Mainstream Media Lies Now more than ever Independent voices are needed Donate now At FreedomReporters.com That's FreedomReporters.com Maverick News The Antivirus Program For Your Mind Sean, welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining us again today. This is super exciting. Rick, it's it's always a pleasure to be on your show. I so appreciate what you do and and just how hard you work on, you know, trying to get truthful information out there. So, always well, glad to be here. Man, it's it's uh, this report so impressive, so extensive, thousands and thousands of pages. Uh, documentation, letters, uh, coupled with the testimony that we saw over many, many weeks. I don't even know where to begin <clears throat> with this, but maybe you just want to speak to first the efforts that came, that, that were well, put forth by the volunteers. Yeah, actually, I, thanks for asking that, because I think it's it's pretty important, like, for everyone to understand, this, this is a volunteer, and the NCI is a volunteer organization. And these commissioners, I mean, aside from the fact, <clears throat> I mean, think about it, and some of them were working like full time and we marched them across, you know, for eight different weeks where basically they were giving up the whole week because you got a day of travel, three days of hearings, and then a day of travel back. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, they were working nights and weekends just to keep up with their regular job. And so they're, they're, you know, disrupting their lives. Now, for this report, I, I think it's important for people to understand, like I was on a podcast the other day and I, I think Britain did a, spent 56 million pounds on, you know, a little report into COVID, <clears throat> you know, government sponsored report, um, which is just kind of astronomical dollars when you think about it. Mm -hmm. But for a government commission, you'll actually have a team of writers that will start writing even before the commissioner starts, like, you know, terms of reference, background, all of that. And then, you know, every day they're hearing, they're doing the witness summaries and they've got professional transcriptionists, you know, doing the transcripts. And this team of writers will be writing the report with the direction of whoever's, you know, the commissioners are. But it's, the point is, is it's really easy on the commissioners from the writing perspective. Well, the report that our four um, commissioners wrote, and they didn't get paid to write this report, by the way. This is volunteer. I want to stress that. It's over 600 pages long. And Rick, you've looked at it. I mean, it is a professional report. It's clear there's no government or other agenda. They're just, <clears throat> and anyone can go and watch any witness they refer to. That's all online. Um, I'll talk about the transcripts being volunteer in a minute. Um, but, but wow, like, I mean, <clears throat> I was on bated breath too, because the commissioners are independent of the NCI administration. So you know, we, we could have no input into what went into the report. We're kind of at the mercy of the commissioners. Like, are they going to give us a good product or what, right? Like here we've, you know, um, when you make them independent, you're, you know, part of that is you have to live with what you get. And I couldn't be more proud of those commissioners, just the effort they put in 
and how seriously they took their role. And I think they they fully understood that the country was watching. Like I, I'm still shocked at the the impact the NCI has had. Like if for those in your audience who have not watched the National Citizens Inquiry, just so you understand, we had 24 full days of hearings, um, 305 witnesses, all testifying under oath, questioned by lawyers, and then questioned by the independent commissioners. You just pick three testimonies, like <clears throat> out of those 305, just randomly pick three and watch them, and you'll be hooked. Like you'll go, oh my gosh. And, and that's just resonating. So we released that report, Rick, on November 28th, and we're getting calls and communications from around the world. The world is watching this thing, and it's all volunteer. I, I, I have to talk about the transcripts. Like, so the report's over 600 pages long, but you know we've got then volumes, because the commissioners wanted the transcripts to follow the report, volumes of these transcripts. Like, we're like between five and 6,000 pages of transcripts. That was all done by volunteers. Like we didn't have the funds to hire transcriptionists. Like, are you kidding me? A, a trans, transcription team basically self-assembled. So, you know, there was a lead person there named Jody who was just adamant. She wanted to volunteer. Like she was just continually communicating. I want to volunteer. I want to volunteer. And so, you know, my wife, Teresa brought her in and said, well, you know, you're, you're a writer, you've got writing skills. Can you kind of chronicle what happened here? And she thought, well, great idea and started to look into it and said, you know, I can't do this without transcripts of what the witnesses said. So she assembled a team herself of volunteers to do transcripts. Now these aren't official transcribers. So their strategy to make sure the transcript transcripts were accurate and robust is they would run the video testimony or the audio testimony through an AI program to get an initial transcript. Then they would have one of them watch the testimony while reading the transcript and make the corrections that they saw. And then that corrected copy, a second one would do the same. So now with the second, uh, you know, watch it. And then, you know, and now we've got, you know, version three. <clears throat> and then a third person would sit down with version three watch it again and compare it. And so like court transcripts aren't perfect. I'm willing to bet that these transcripts on average are better than court transcripts and all done by volunteers. Like can you imagine, like almost 6,000 pages. And that's the magic of the, the National Citizens Inquiry is it's just all of us getting together and, and doing what we can. Like I, I am humbled every time I turn around just at, you know, how ordinary Canadians just keep stepping up and doing things. And now, you know, now we're on to the next phase where it's kind of like, well, what are ordinary Canadians going to do with this report? It's truly amazing. And I mean, here's your, uh, I'll just bring it up so people can see this. They can go to your website to, 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 to get copies of this report, <clears throat> right? Yes. Um, and yeah, 50, almost 6,000 pages of transcripts and and then it's all compiled into uh, a, a condensed form with um so where you've got your recommendations and your summary um which is extremely helpful uh where should we begin with that i guess 
first, I mean, we don't need to get back into the process and stuff. I'm really mostly interested in what the recommendations are and, and where we go from here. So where do we begin with that? Yeah. So maybe before we get into the specific recommendations, you know, your question, where do we go from here? Because it's interesting, Rick, like people understand that things are changing and they, they understand they have to get involved. Like, you know, <clears throat> we were all so afraid, you know, in the middle of the, I call it the COVID madness, because we were all like shocked, right? Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I was shocked that all of a sudden, you know, we're locked down, like basically under house arrest. And, and then we're, you know, and just the amount of fear, right? Like, I'm not an emergency management expert, but I understand you don't stoke fear if there even is a crisis. Like now I'm of the opinion there wasn't a crisis. So um, we didn't get down to the why. We just, you know, at this stage have gotten to the what. Um, I'm hoping, you know, maybe we'll hold more hearings. I don't know. That, that'll depend on the public and, and you know, where, what we feel we should collectively do next, right? Because um, the NCI is actually a very just small group of, of volunteers that then just rely on other people to step in and, and help us do things. But, you know, we were really just getting down to the, you know, the, the what. But <clears throat> where do we go from here? Because what we have now is, is we've got this incredible body of knowledge. Like, we've got 305 witnesses We've got the, the transcripts, we have the video, all taken under oath. We've got the, the largest repertoire of COVID information in the world, and we have the most reliable. I mean, these aren't podcasts, these aren't interviews. These are witnesses testifying under oath and being questioned under oath. It's the most reliable record in the world. And then we've got this report, which is just incredibly you know, detailed, well-written, level-headed, and with positive recommendations, which, you know, we'll get into for a second. But, but people are asking, well, what do, we, what do you do next? Like, they're basically expecting the NCI to save them. Like, you know, we're some knight on a white horse, which is kind of misunderstanding that actually you're us. You know, just like we are, were the police state, right? Like, we couldn't have had these lockdowns. We couldn't have had these maskings. We couldn't have had any of the madness if we didn't participate because it was us that was enforcing it. Like we could have just said, no, we're not doing this. Like at what stage do you say no to the government? Um, and But I don't think anyone ev had even asked that question before because we were so surprised. Like I didn't expect this. We get this fear porn on the TV. At first I'm buying into it. I'm afraid. I'm thinking... Yeah. Oh, is this the 1918 Spanish flu, which I think we've been gamed on that anyway. But let's say that, you know, it's true. Like, are 20% of us going to die here? Or is our 30% going to die? Like, you know, for a little while, I was buying into that. And, and I think most of us were at the beginning, you know, for various lengths of time. And it's like, okay, like, so first of all, we're completely thrown off balance, like just bang out of the blue. Um. <clears throat> And many people are, are still there, like they still have that belief. They're still wearing masks. Um, I know it's a very small percentage that are still getting, you know, the boosters, but some people are still living that to various degrees. Um, and then kind of the rest of us, once, you know, you realize, wait a second, this doesn't add up and something else is happening. 
Well, I was just afraid then that we were sliding into a police state. Rick, if I can share with you, at a couple of recent lectures I did, so probably the combined audience is, you know, 850 to 900 people. I asked the audiences to put up their hand if they seriously believed that in, you know, the height of this COVID madness, that the army would be used to go door to door, dragging unvaccinated people out of their homes and jabbing them. Rick, almost every hand went up. Now, that is a barometer of, of fear. Like if you, if you have a large percentage of a population in Canada actually believing the army was going to go door to door, and I mean, if you supported the vaccine program, that's still horrifying. Could you imagine watching the army drag some of your neighbors out of their homes and, and forcefully jabbing them? I mean, even if you thought the jab was a good idea, that, I mean, that would just be a horrific thing to witness because you would understand, even if it's just subconsciously, that you no longer have any control over your body, um, that the government can impose any treatment they want on you. Like that, that's a frightful thing. So, so we were all terrified and we were all caught off guard. And, and this is an appropriate conversation, Rick, because I think in the next three months, um, we're, going to, we're going to be experiencing some turmoil um, and we, we're going to be experiencing some um, times of confusion and we're going to be scared again. And I think it's, this is just my gut feeling, but, and I, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but I think, you know, a year from now, if you and I are on the show, you know, end of December, 2024, that we will find that we're in a really good place. Like I, 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 I think that things are going to turn around, but you know, it's almost like you have birth pains before something good happens. And I think that's where we're at. But why I'm bringing this up is, is, you know, we've all been through a terrifying experiences. Like, I'm, I mean, I just thought, you know, 20% of us was going to die. And then I thought the army was going to be going door to door and jabbing people with something that, you know, at best is going to sterilize them. And you know, at worst is going to kill them. And, um, you know, and just going through that horrible experience, we'll understand we're still here. All of us are still here. We're still here. So we've gone through uh, such a scary and transformative experience like we've never had before, and, and we're still here. So we can do it again. Like, it's kind of like we've been there, done that. We got the T-shirt. So the next time we're terrified and the next time we're being confused and the next time we really don't know what's going on, well, understand you've done this before. You can overcome fear and also understand that, that because you're going to be involved now, we're going to come out of this in a much better place. I mean, Rick, I think we're going we're gonna to find ourselves in a Canada where you know our institutions are working for us again. And, you know, where we understand we actually have to treat each other with respect and kindness and, you know, allow ourselves to disagree and allow ourselves to be able to make our own personal decisions. Um, and, and like, I, I just think we're going to have an entire shift, but we still have some more to go through. So, I, like, I'm incredibly optimistic. And I think what the NCI has done, both with the, and, and I can't even say what the NCI has done, because, you, you know, my feelings is, you know, God just took this and did his own thing with it that just surprised all of us. Because for those who didn't watch, so don't <clears throat> don't just pick testimonies. You pick days. Like, because we've also got videos 
of the whole day, start to finish. So, you know, all the mistakes, all the gaffes, everything in there, but you start watching those openings and just follow through with the day. And you will see that something un unexpected happened. It wasn't just witnesses taking the stand and speaking. We were all kind of having this experience. And you don't get that if you just pick a witness's testimony because we've broken it up where every witness has their own page now. And you can just watch their testimony and their page has a link to their transcript and their exhibits. Um, but you kind of lose what happened if, unless you watch the whole day and just see how it unfolds and see how themes kept coming up from witnesses that would not have known what other witnesses said, would not have known what was said at the openings, but the entire day fits together. And, and basically, God created a community. I mean, he, through the whole experience, you watch the whole thing, you will never be the same again, and you will never, you will never find yourself terrified again where you're paralyzed. You're going to be scared again. But if you watch all of the ends, I just start and start at the beginning and walk through. You'll see how we got, you know, better and better and more polished and all of that. It's kind of like, you know, a TV show starts and, and, you know, when you're at the end of season five and you look at season one, you go, Oh my gosh, they were, well, same with us, but you will see, you will see these themes developing. And, you know, we were told quite clearly, you're not alone. Like the worst thing is feeling isolated, which we all were at the beginning. Well, we're the majority. It's the majority of Canadians that, you know, understand we need to treat each other with kindness and respect, um, that understand that God's actually moving in our land and he's in control and we're not alone. And then we also learned, and it was a clear message, you're going to be terrified again, but you can overcome your fear. Like just understand it's a process. And, and you know, you've already, you've already gone through the worst and, and you can do this. And then the third thing is, it's like, we have to get involved. And then we're getting back to your question, you know, well, what's next? What do we do with this report? It's your responsibility. So just like it was you that allowed the police state to happen. And, and you, you don't like hearing that, but you allowed the police state to happen. You know, many of you, um, if you had a passport and, and like, I don't care whether you got vaxxed or unvaxxed, like it, that, what you did there just depended on on what information you believe. Like we all act the same, right? So like if, if I believe there was a dangerous virus and I could be, I could get out of it by taking a vaccine, I'm taking a vaccine, like full stop. If that's my belief, that's what I'm doing. And I actually then want everyone else to do it. Like it's perfectly rational and reasonable, but it's another thing altogether to say, well, I'm gonna go to a restaurant because I have identity papers, which we call a vaccine passport, understanding that there's a group of citizens that can't and like so participating in that division you know you need to think long and hard about that because you basically police participated in a police state ritual and you know even going to the restaurant with a passport instead of saying no i won't i won't participate in this you you enforce the system. And if you're the restaurant owner, having your staff check the passports, you're participating in the system. And I get you were afraid, but who cares? And I, you're worried about losing your business, who cares? If enough of you stood up, if the, my point is, is we could have just said, no, police states rely on the citizens. So the citizens are the police state. And 
So the citizens also are the ones to get our institutions back. So the NCI can't do anything. We're a, we're a very small group that just tries to get you involved in you know what we feel we should be doing next. Well, what we feel we should be doing next is is just letting you know it's up to you. I mean, so we'll we'll try and come up with the tools to help you participate. But if you think you're not responsible for actually getting down on your knees and deciding, you know, print, well, how do I, what do I do? This is a spiritual war manifesting as an information war. How do I, what's my role in getting those that don't understand what's really going on, understand, because then all of a sudden they're on your side. And now the NCI is a great tool for that. I mean, we still have running a This Is Canada campaign where we just have this one little page flyer introducing who we are and challenging people to pick three testimonies and watch them. And what the challenge was, it was actually like a Canada Day thing, but it, it still applies, is I think, you know, Canada was, what are we, like 1867, like 167 years old, or I don't, I, mean, I can have the math wrong. But anyway, let's say we're 167 years old. Or sixty, whatever. whatever. Yeah. Print out that many Over and just deliver them in your neighborhood, right? Like that'll take you a couple hours. That's actually it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're walking door to door, that's going to take you a couple of hours. But let's say ten people then watched the the testimony and woke up. Well, now you've got ripples in that whole family, and for very little cost to yourself, like most people just get staples to print them off, but they they will print off in grayscale. Fine, you can do it on your home printer. Um, well, for very little effort, you have now woken up 10 families. And you see, it's something you can do. You know, at the last couple of lectures, I, and these were in Alberta, and I think we have 86 MLAs. And for people out east, we call MPPs MLAs. So we have, you know, I think 86 provincial elected representatives. And I said to the audiences, just to make the point on how powerful you are, because people don't understand how powerful they are, is I said, if 100 of you in this room, and, you know, that would be a, a small fraction, of, like we had four to 500 people each lecture. So if just 100 of you in this room would take an afternoon each month for the next 12 months, like an afternoon a month is not a big commitment in a war where people are dying, right? So if you would just take an afternoon each month and write a one-page letter for your, you know, to your MLA, a one-page letter explaining that you want children to stop being vaccinated. So whatever the latest information is on that, or just even say, you know, I'm, I live in Alberta and I'm really concerned because there's a whole bunch of information. We shouldn't be jabbing kids. Like just write a one page letter. Now the address is to the provincial legislative assembly. So now that you've written your one page letter to your, your MPP or MLA, print that off and then change the name to the next MLA or MPP. And for all 86, print off 86 letters. It's the same address, so this isn't onerous at all. It's the same envelope. So, you know, put it in a big envelope, send it off to your legislative assembly. And if 100 of you did that for 12 months, so, you know, an afternoon each month for 12 months, it would mean that every provincial representative in that year will have received 1,200 letters telling them to stop jabbing kids. Now, 1,200 letters on one topic in one year is pretty significant. Do you see the power there? Like people don't understand calling your representatives, writing letters. Like emails have way less weight because it's so easy to email. But writing letters, calling, actually asking for visits. Like 
you make it clear you want these these vaccines to stop. You want us to stop jabbing kids. <clears throat> you want a review and a government review into COVID. You're like whatever it is, but get involved. And <clears throat> and I just gave an example of like one afternoon a month for 12 months, and that's not acceptable because one thing God's saying at, through speaker after speaker after speaker is you're now going to be held accountable for your actions going forward. Have you, um, you know who Arthur Pulaski is, Rick? Yes. Yeah. Um, have you heard that vision he had? The vision? No. Yeah, he had a, he had a vision, like a, you, you might call it a dream, but you know where you have a, like a vivid dream? Um, I heard it from two other sources. I've not spoken to Arthur yet myself. I got to give him a call, but I had two different people. I have said the same thing publicly. Like I first learned on it on a big podcast where somebody's talking about it. Um, and what, what was reported was, you know, he sees this fence that just goes on as far as the eye can see. And everyone in the world is sitting on top of the fence. Great symbolism there, right? Sitting on the fence. Mm -hmm. And then God's hands come down and grab the fence and, and start shaking. Well, everyone's going to fall off that fence. They have to decide which side of the fence they're going to fall onto. Are they falling on God's side of the fence? Or are they falling on Satan's side of the fence? And when the shaking was done, there's nobody on the fence. And, you know, the message there is, is you have to decide. Now, I can tell you as a matter of fact that Satan wants you to attend freedom rallies. He wants you to watch podcasts like this. And to think, hey, I'm on the right side, but you're actually not doing anything because Satan's plan for you, the other side's plan for you is for you to actually not take action. But the best case scenario is for you believing you're on the right side because, you know, you agree with them. You watch podcasts, you might go to the odd freedom rally, but you're not doing anything. You're not taking personal responsibility for the fact that every single one of our institutions is no longer acting in the interests of the citizens. So, so understand, you know, agreeing with God's side is not being on God's side. You now have to take action because on God's side, the message is you're going to be held to account for what you do or don't do now. So <clears throat> we've all got to win this information war. You talk to people in the grocery store line. You stop being afraid and you talk to your family members and those that have ostracized you. You, you, you don't let, you know, your sister give their, her kids another jab. You don't, you don't allow that to happen with, without them knowing that you made it perfectly clear that's a bad idea. You tell your pharmacist next time you're at the pharmacy, you have to stop the COVID jabs. You're going to be held responsible. You're going to be sued. And you might go to jail. Like you put that in their minds. Like we start pushing back and we start pushing back now. And so the commissioner's report is a wonderful way to do that because now you have a <clears throat> biased professional report based on testimony under oath that is totally public. Yeah, and it is extremely extensive. Um, because it's an inquiry, this, this is actually for me pretty unique because if this had been a government inquiry or inquest or a review of what happened, it would go back to the government. The, the onus would be on government to 
maybe take some sort of action to implement changes based on recommendations. But this being a citizen's inquiry, which the government basically refused to participate in, you're quite right. I mean, I see the onus coming back to the people to make something happen with this because we have these extensive recommendations, but because the government isn't participating, it's really up to the people to put pressure on government, our politicians, our institutions, our doctors, people involved in the the legal system, all the way down the line, put pressure on them to take action. So you've already given some recommendations here, but there are there other things that people can do to get involved, like get involved in local councils or your school boards or what else can they do? Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that because it'll depend on, on the recommendations, but Rick, can I just say, you, you just put that in a way I'd never thought of that is beautiful. Like, I mean, if the government does an inquiry, it goes back to the government to decide what to do with it. And then you said, but this was a citizen one, so it goes back to the citizens. If you don't mind, I'm going to borrow that going forward because I think that's brilliant. Like I've never, I've never heard it put that way, but I think you're absolutely right. So <clears throat> this, this inquiry looked into how all levels of government <clears throat> handled COVID. And it also... Um, it invariably covered also how, you know, it, it's critical of private employers. It's critical of colleges like colleges of physicians and surgeons, which aren't quite government. I mean, there's legislation establishing them, but, you know, technically they're not government and, you know, colleges of pharmacists and things like that. So there, there are colleges, you know, if you want to be a medical doctor, you have to be a member of the college in your province or you can't practice. Like they're the ones that basically give you your, MD certification. You know, it's <clears throat> so just like I, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a member of, of a provincial law society. You know, I had to write their exams and prove competence to them. <clears throat> and then they grant me the designation. I, if I don't renew and keep up with my professional training, I can't practice. Like, so, you know, I have a college. Well, the doctors have a college. So, <clears throat> so depending on what the recommendations are, is depending on what level of government. So like you raised municipal, for an example. Well, almost every municipality, just you know, picking one of the things that happened, required their employees to be vaccinated. And, you know, some of them, what or they, you know, enforced masking mandates and distance mandates. Um, <clears throat> you know, and it and likely in some cases, you know, even followed the provincial government to themselves would require, you know, passports and the like, and other things. And it was the municipalities that would be directing their enforcement officers and the police, you know, to be aggressive with, you know, the enforcement. Like, you know, I live in Alberta and, and Alberta has got the record for jailing pastors during this for holding church of all things. Like they're morally obligated by their God to hold church and we're going to put them like for whatever reason in Alberta, like our enforcement, you know, we, we just went after pastors more. So there are recommendations affecting municipalities and the NCI will be creating materials to help you put pressure at the municipal level. And we will be creating materials to help you put pressure on the provincial level. 
and we will be creating materials to help you put pressure on the federal level. So for example, you know, at the federal level, <clears throat> one of the recommendations is from the commissioners is stop all COVID vaccines now. You, you basically exempted them from having to prove that they were safe. You exempted them from having to prove that they were that they worked. And so you must stop all vaccination, COVID vaccination now. And I'm sorry, we're not in a crisis. We're not in a COVID pandemic right now. So we don't need to be doing boosters or doing any COVID vaccination. And you put them through the regular process where they have to be proven to be safe and they have to be proven to be effective before you allow any more. And then and only then, and you know, then you then and only then can you allow. Well, that that's pressure at the federal level because it's the federal government that is responsible for drug licensing. So we actually did start a campaign. We had gotten, you know, a program that you, you have to pay for that helps you structure like they've already got all the MPs listed. And so you set up the page and we we had this letter writing campaign. So it would you could send an email directly to your MP and a couple of other MPs, and then it would email you a copy of the letter with instructions. Please actually print out the letter because a written letter sent in has more weight than an email and do this. Um, and so we had, you know, roughly 10,000 people do this, like in a short time span. And then the company um, basically suspended our right to do, like they said, We're, you can't use our platform anymore because they didn't like our content. But, you know, we'll just adjust and come up with other campaigns. And so we'll try and equip you to take action. But understand, you've got to be figuring out what you do yourself, right? Like, so yes, participate in, in what we, you know, we help you do. We, we definitely want you to do that. But, but like an afternoon a month or, you know, a couple hours a week, that's not enough. You have to figure out what your role is. And if you actually understand you have to, you have to find your role and start praying about it and thinking about it, and then just taking whatever actions you, other people are helping you do like NCI and other freedom groups, um, it'll kind of just fall into place. Like you'll be, you'll be guided as to where you should be. And before long, you will be surprised at the difference you're making because you don't understand how powerful you are once you start doing what you're supposed to be doing like it <clears throat> so you know so the the vaccine is you know is one of the things like rick if we can just off the top of my head um some things that come to mind actually is unions and you know so that's Which not absolutely failed people yeah no it, it's not governmental it's or um per se, except that the provincial governments passed legislation that basically put unionized employees in the situation that, you know, if, if something happens to them, <clears throat> so in this case, it was unionized employees that were being told by their employer, employer, you must take an experimental treatment in violation of the Nuremberg Code and Canadian criminal law, You mu and, you know, and where you have no valid consent. You must do this, or you will either lose your job or be suspended without pay. It is now a condition of your employment to take an experimental treatment. Now you're unionized in in most, if not all, provinces. You don't have the legal right to go to court 
against your employer, you know, if you had the financial wherewithal to do that, and if you could find a lawyer willing to act for you, because especially early on, people that were having these types of disputes could not find lawyers willing to take their cases. But you'd be barred by law anyway. If you found a lawyer, the lawyer would say, no, you're unionized. You have to go to your union because the, le the, because the union's empowered to represent you legally. The union has to grieve. But we had union after union after union. And actually, like a friend of mine is coming to mind that th this exact scenario happened to him <clears throat> where, you know, <clears throat> his employer said you had, to, you had to get the experimental treatment or you're going to be suspended without pay. He goes to his union and his union won't grieve. His union says, get vaccinated. You, like the union was putting pressure on him to get vaccinated. So he had no legal remedy. And, and person after person after person, and many witnesses at the NCI testified about this. And so <clears throat> one of the obvious then recommendations that the commissioners came up with was, well, we need to amend these provincial labor laws so that if a union will not take up the grievance, you're not precluded from going to court for a remedy. Now, in retrospect, in the rearview mirror, that like that seems like common sense. And I'm sure that issue has come up in other aspects before, but not in large enough numbers that it, it would come to the public notice. Yeah, actually, we we do have kind of an unfair situation in our labor laws where if the union doesn't agree with you, you have no remedy. Yep. Okay, well, that <clears throat> that's actually a pretty important thing that the commissioners are recommending and really should not be objectionable to our provincial representatives. And it's actually one that I'm hoping, like once we organize, like, Rick, there's over 70 pages of recommendations. So <clears throat> the way the report's structured is, is, you know, they'll deal with a topic and then they'll list that, you know, at the end of that, here's our recommendations on that topic. And then they go on, but they also have them all together. <laughs> and like just the list, <clears throat> it's over 70 pages long of recommendations. So, I mean, I think what we have to do in the new year, like, you know, we're at the Christmas season and, and things kind of slow down and for good reason. But I think in the new year, like using this, <clears throat> excuse me, union example, you know, we, we need to have a campaign on that and then have people through various ways, you know, bring to their provincial representatives attention. We've got this problem. It, it creates unfairness when it happens and let's amend those laws. And I'm actually hopeful that, you know, if people will support and actually do things, because again, <clears throat> the NCI is you. Like, you know, people think the NCI is some big corporation like IBM or something like, we're a handful of volunteers, a handful of, did I say volunteers? Volunteers that have just actually watched God use you to put this together and make it happen. And will, and similarly are just, oh, wow, I wonder what the people are going to do because it's the people that are the NCI. There's no power without you. The government has no power without you. So the government sliding us into a police state, digital currencies, locking us in 15-minute cities, giving our sovereignty, the World Health Organization. So, you know, the next pandemic, we don't even get to decide how we run our public health. 
that only happens if you make it happen. You are you are the power. And so I'm actually excited to see what you do going forward. And the union one is a perfect example. Let's move on to courts. I mean, I've already mentioned how, you know, it was hard to find a lawyer that would act with you or for you. And definitely, you know, one that would act with passion for you. <clears throat> but the courts. So we have just had the largest intrusion of government into our, you know, for most of us into our lives. I mean, if you are a First Nations person and, you know, prior to the Bill of Rights, where basically you were confined to your reservation and you would need actually the written permission of the Indian agent to leave your reservation. So, I mean, even if you just wanted to go into town to the feed store, cause you know, to buy feed for your chickens, you had to get the written authorization of the Indian agent to be able to go and, and do that until the Bill of Rights came in in the late 50s under Diefenbaker. So, but for First Nations people that experienced um, that apartheid system, and South Africa came to Canada to see how we do it before they designed apartheid. Most people don't know that. Um, so, but for that, but for the rest of us, we just experienced the largest government intrusion into our lives um, ever. Even, you know, during wartime, it wasn't so bad. And, you know, here we had, a, you know, this wonderful charter of rights and freedoms that, you know, became part of our constitution, the supreme law of the land in 1982. <clears throat> and I was expecting court after court to basically stand up and say, you're going too far. And, you know, you show us the evidence. What, you're firing people for masking? You're not letting them get on planes and trains? You show us the evidence that they need to be masked. And you show us the evidence they need to be vaccinated. Because the law was they didn't, these vaccines did not have to be proven safe and they did not have to be proven effective. And in fact, you know, this fake drug approval test that they came up with for the vaccines, the word safety is not even mentioned. And the word efficacy is not even mentioned, let alone have to be proven. Like, it, it's unbelievable. Like, if the people of Canada would just actually read the law, because it's the law. It's, it's, the documents are all published on the, on the government websites. COVID-19 vaccines did not have to go through the regular drug approval process where safety and efficacy are proven. An interim test was put in where you didn't have to prove they were safe and you didn't have to prove they were effective. <clears throat> But we weren't told that we were proved, you know, we were told safe and effective, safe and effective, which was pure propaganda. But back to the courts, Rick, I was expecting court after court after court to be slamming the government and putting restrictions. I am not aware of a single court decision anywhere in Canada at any level that puts a break on any level of government or any institution going forward, not a single break. So not, you know, you're gonna impose mask mandates. Well, maybe you need to put an exception in the law that people that, you know, really can't for medical reasons are exempted. And, you know, people can't get around that. Maybe there has to be religious, no, no, not a single break. So here we've gone through the largest intrusion into our lives, so the, the largest running over of our rights, 
And there's not a single case saying, oh, government, you need to take this into account next time. Or, you know, you have to allow this exemption. Not a single one. How is that possible? Like, how how is that po like it's not possible and yet it's happened so so i don't know i mean i i just don't know except you know i think it just shows how strong the hysteria was because the messaging was so one-sided which you know gets to the next topic of the media but one of the things the commissioners are calling for is is we have to have a hard look into what happened with the court system. How is it that we went through this? Like in the court system, case after case, like if the case was was heard at all, which really just largely happened in, in family law. Like, <clears throat> so let me get back to the court. So let, let's use Brian Peckford's case as, as an example, because it got a lot of publicity because he's been such a champion against this, right? So <clears throat> he and others brought in federal court an application to say that these travel mandates saying that you couldn't fly or you couldn't take a train unless you know you had your 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 identity papers that we we call you know vaccine passport passport yeah 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 so <clears throat> so they file and you know both sides file their affidavits this was a case on affidavits and then the people who filed affidavits they're all um, you know, cross-examined under oath and all the transcripts are there and they've all prepared their legal arguments. But then the federal government drops the travel mandate before it's the case is heard and the Crown applies to the court saying, well, don't decide this because it's moot. And by moot, they mean you can't grant them a remedy now. You can't say, no, you are allowed to fly because there's no mandate anyway. So let's not hear this. When the real issue is, you have told us we can't fly without taking an experimental treatment, and we want to know if that's constitutional or not. We really don't care whether we can get on a plane. Well, yes, we do, but that's secondary to the fact that we want you to say this can't happen again, or if it can happen again, only in these circumstances. You're putting brakes, and you're requiring them to look into things so that the rights are balanced. That's the real issue, but it was thrown out for mootness. And case after case after case, the courts actually didn't hear it. They used this doctrine of mootness. So the, the commissioners are saying that has to change. Like when you're intruding into people's rights, constitutional right cases can't be thrown out for mootness. That's madness because then all the government has to do is drop that mandate for a short period of time before the hearing and it gets thrown out. And then, oh, now we have monkeypox, or oh, you know, now we have, you know, Transformer 3.1, whatever they decide to name it, and the mandate's back, and rinse and repeat. Like that, that is not fair to the citizens, and it does not help us going forward in understanding where, where the lines are between the citizen and the state. So the citizens don't know, and the state doesn't know. And that's one of the recommendations. <clears throat> that has to change. Another thing that happened is that basically, like, you know, what was it, 1689 when William of Orange signed the Magna Carta? And and I, I appreciate that didn't apply to the people. It was only the nobles that were members of the House of Commons. But it bound the crown 
to the same rule. So it, it established the rule of law where everyone, and everyone then was just the nobility and the crown, but the principle that the crown was subject to the same laws. And then that later expanded to, you know, the nobility and the commoners are subject to the same law, and so is the crown. So the rule of law is everyone is subject to the same laws. <clears throat> well, that only works if we're all on the same footing in court. <clears throat> like, Rick, if you and I had a dispute, hang on, I have to take a drink. If you and I had a dispute and went to court and the court said to you, um, actually, we're just going to accept everything that Sean says is true as true, and you have to prove your case. <clears throat> that wouldn't be fair. No. no it's, uh, but that's what happened, and especially in family law. So the parent that wanted the child to – the family law cases, what happened is, is one parent was concerned about the COVID-19 vaccine and didn't want the child to be vaccinated, and the other parent – bought into the narrative, in which case, no, actually, I need the child vaccinated. I, again, no one's being nefarious here. It just depends on what information you believed, right? We all act the same way. Like, we have to cut each other slack. You know, if you believe different things, you would act differently. So, <clears throat> um, but the problem in the courts for the parent that didn't want the child to be vaccinated is the courts would just assume that whatever public health said was true, and the other side has to disprove this. And in fact, that Ontario Court of Appeal decision, um, CG versus JN, the Ontario Court of Appeal basically says, <clears throat> if Health Canada has approved a drug, then that is prima facie evidence. So just, you know, initial evidence that needs to be rebutted, that that is true. So basically, there's now a legal presumption that if something's been approved by Health Canada, a drug that is proven to be safe and effective, well, that's not an independent court. That's not the rule of law. And I, I just think it's ironic that the Ontario Court of Appeal actually didn't understand they weren't proven to be safe and effective, the COVID-19 vaccines. Like they could say that about most other drugs, but you couldn't say that about the COVID-19 vaccines. And that was, is what the case was about. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse for the rest of us. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm shocked and alarmed that, that the Ontario Court of Appeal didn't appreciate <clears throat> that the COVID-19 vaccines weren't proven to be safe and effective. So, but we're just talking about um, recommendations. Let's talk about the World Health Organization. And, and I will say this is an area that, you know, the NCI was weak on. What I mean is, is we didn't have a lot of experts that we were able to schedule in to speak about this. But we had some and, you know, <clears throat> One thing that came out was, and I don't know if, if your viewers understand, so Canada is part of a process um, whereby, and no one's calling this a treaty, it's almost like Harry Potter where you can't say the name Voldemort. So we've been engaged in this process that really is a treaty process because it will bind Canada and we'll lose our sovereignty. Um, but we don't call it a treaty process. And what what is is happened, and we've already passed the deadline, so this is becoming binding on us, um, unless we just totally withdraw. Um, but what what is going to occur is is we are going to find ourselves in a situation where if the World Health Organization declares a pandemic, 
And we don't do exactly what we say we should do in fighting that pandemic, then the World Health Organization has authority over our public health and can, and can actually take control of our management of the pandemic. Now, let me put this into context for you. So during COVID-19, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic and Canada basically followed what the World Health Organization said you should do. So in that scenario, they wouldn't step in because we're already doing exactly what they say we should do. Now, following the COVID-19 pandemic, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox to be a pandemic. And the public health you know, experts in Canada thought, actually, you know, monkeypox is not posing a threat to Canada. So we took minimal, um, we did minimal things with regards to monkeypox. But in that scenario now going forward, the World Health Organization could now step in, take control of our, our health, how we, you know, basically authority over our, um, our health um, system and implement what they want us to do to counter the monkeypox. And, you know, the, the philosophical difficulty I have with that is, is, do you mean in Canada we don't have the expertise to decide for ourselves locally with our own conditions that we're experiencing? You, you mean we don't have the competence to decide how we should handle a pandemic going forward? It doesn't mean we can't choose to follow what the, the World Health Organization says, like we did in COVID, but you mean actually we don't have the competence and it's a good idea to give our national sovereignty away in the most fundamental thing that touches the population. Our fundamental freedom is the right to choose how we treat our bodies. And so we could have an, a, a non-elected, you know, transnational organization basically dictating that we must take a vaccine or other treatment and we have no choice. Like, how do we give our sovereignty up over that where the citizen can't even complain to their provincial representatives or their federal representatives because they no longer have the power? How is that? Did you just hear that? So how do we put ourselves in a situation where <clears throat> you can't go to your provincial legislative body and say, will you run public health in the province, stop imposing this treatment on us? Well, they have no power. They can't. And we can't go to the federal government and say, disapprove this, stop this, like, because they can't. We, we no longer have national autonomy or authority over our health care system. Do, do you see the implications? How does this happen? And how is this not in the mainstream media? It, it, and by the way, the commissioners recommend that we withdraw from the World Health Organization because of that. Absolutely. It's um, a question, as you say, of, of national sovereignty. Canadians making choices for ourselves. It's uh, uh, an attack on individual rights and freedoms. Um, because we have a push toward I hate to use the phrase because it's so you it's such a catchphrase and a cliche, but it, it it's a, it's a march toward globalism. Well, our prime minister Trudeau calls it transnationalism and he campaigned on it. I mean, he's, he doesn't hide it. He supports transnationalism and that's what it means is giving up your body 
to organizations that you don't have any say in who runs the organization. So it's completely anti-democratic. And again, <clears throat> so we're all we're now in a situation where if the World Health Organization steps in and takes control of our public health and is saying things like you have to lock down, you have to shut your economy down, you have to put people in jail for violating, you know, here's an experimental treatment that's been rushed, you must impose it on your citizens. And you go to your provincial legislature and they all agree, Both, every party, every, every member, every MPP or MLA, whatever you call them, agrees, oh yeah, this is awful, we need to stop this. They can't. They can't. Because we've given up our sovereignty, our right to do that. <clears throat> well, why aren't the provincial legislatures standing up like my god quebec do you hear a peep out of them H how is it possible because the media is not reporting that's how it's possible but i mean if the if the people of quebec understood <clears throat> and the people of alberta you know the next province that's touchy about provincial rights but i don't care what province you're in do you understand that it if the world health organization steps in it doesn't matter how much you disagree with what is being imposed on you. There's nothing your elected representatives can do. How is that good for you? How is that good for us as a nation? It, it like there's, it's not, and it's so clear and blatant. And it, it's something that, you know, we will be having a campaign at the NCI to get us out of the World Health Organization. And that's going to be at the provincial level because it's the provinces that have jurisdiction over how health is run. And it's going to be at the federal level because they're the ones that have the authority to bind the rest of the country in this madness, this treaty that we don't call a treaty. So, <clears throat> but we need to create tremendous pressure on this because it, it's, it's just amazing that our elective representatives have basically given our most fundamental powers away. So it re really means that the citizens have lost their autonomy over their bodies to an extra national organization that they have no say in who runs. So this is something that's likely to be an issue or you'd like to push it forward as an issue uh, through the organization, the NCI, as an election issue um, moving ahead. Well, I mean, the NCI has to be careful because we're, you know, we're not a lobby group. Like we, you know, our mandate is to try and get the recommendations approved. Um, you know, but I don't know that we would, we would frame it as an election issue. We don't, we don't identify with any party. Um, this is just, you know, uh, this is just common sense. This isn't, this isn't right wing. It's not left wing. It's not middle. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wouldn't ever frame it that way. And, and one of the restraints that we would impose upon ourselves is to not become too political. And, you know, even us, you know, basically taking steps to empower the citizen to take action, you know, is something we need to be cautious about. But we, you know, we feel obligated to do it because some people just don't know yet how to, you know, take their power back. Um, I think as we learn going forward that, you know, the NCI can, you know, kind of that part of, of what we're trying to help you with, you know, we can kind of withdraw from, because once you know how to do things, you just know how to do them. Um, you know, and, 
And one thing that happened throughout the NCI process is, you know, people would just do things on their own initiatives. Like, I won't even name the platform, but, you know, on one of the social media platforms, you'll think it's our channel. You think, you'll think we run it because all the postings are just what we put out. No, it's just some other person that saw we didn't have that account and set it up and just mirrors everything that we do as a service <clears throat> and like whole groups organized, especially during the hearings to bring publicity and stuff like, well, we'd learn of what they did after they did it. Like, <clears throat> and I mean, that's the, that's the thing to understand is, is it's you, it's you like, you know, we can try and, and teach you how to do things, but you're the NCI, you're the police state, you're the Canada you want Canada to be. It, it's your decision. And, and you have to decide now. And, and not doing something is a clear decision that you're going to be held to account for. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful time, Rick, because, you know, some of us thought we would just, you know, go through life, we'd get a good job, you know, maybe we'd retire to a cabin at the lake, um, you know, become a snowbird or something, you know, best case scenario. And, and you know, die peacefully with our grandkids, you know, all around us you know, with a peaceful goodbye, um, <clears throat> without actually ever having to decide who we were, because that's all very selfish. That's not focusing on, like the second commandment, like obviously the first, you know, love the Lord your God with all you are. But the second one is, you know, love your neighbor like yourself, which, you know, is a real commitment to how you live your life, because um, it, it means you're not living your life focused on yourself, but you're actually have a moral obligation to be involved in all levels of government, involved in your school boards, involved in your professional organizations, involved in actually paying attention to how your neighbor's being treated. Um, like it, it means we have a responsibility for each other um, as a prime responsibility. Uh, well, that's a very different way of living, but now actually it's come into focus that we have a responsibility for our neighbor. We have a responsibility to make sure that our institutions are working for the common good as opposed to serving an in, another interest. Um, <clears throat> well, how beautiful that is because we actually, uh, we actually get to choose and we are better for it. Like, <clears throat> I like to point out to people and I challenge your audience to, you know, email me and tell me I was wrong with what I'm about to say. But when you were a real little kid, you knew you were here for something really important. You just knew it. You, you didn't know how the world worked. You didn't, you're a little kid, but you knew you were here for something important. You just, in your soul, you understood you were here for something important. And then, you know, we started socializing you in school and you might have gone to university or, you know, trained. And now you're in a job <clears throat> and you're married and, you know, you're you have no time. You're taking the kids to soccer practice. You're involved in this. You're involved in that. You're doing all you can to make ends meet. And you remember thinking at those times now and again, not often, you know, I used to think I was here for something important. But, you know, I guess that was just childish thinking and I was wrong. I know I had those thoughts. Um, well, no, actually you were right when you were a kid. You were sent here to do something really, really important. 
and that's choosing right now who you are. And, and that's a precious gift. Because you get to do something really, really important. You, you get to, you get, this is a turning point in history and your actions are going to decide which way it turns. That's really important. So congratulations on being right when you were a kid. Great way to put it. Anything you'd like to, uh, to add, Sean, as we, we kind of wrap this thing up? <clears throat> Rick, just to say, um, you know, and, and I do this too, you know, like I, I've got my little websites I go to to try and find out, you know, what new stuff is happening. Um, but the alternate news websites, you know, tend to focus on the negative. And, you know, so you can kind of like catch up and, and you know, almost feel like the sky's falling. Um, and so really, actually, we, we need to do that less and less and less, like maybe once or twice a week. Um, pull yourself out of the negative and understand that actually we had we had to go through this process. We've, like I say, I think the next three months, we're going to be scared again. Um, but understand that that this is all by design and this is actually to get us to a better place. And so... I, my ending note would just be, you know, understand, yeah, we're not done. And actually, I think it's time to prepare, like have extra food, get gold and silver, the whole thing. Um, maybe, you know, get into Bitcoin or whatever. I, I think that we're at that stage where you don't have a whole lot of time yet just to buy some insurance. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but understand that we're going to end up in a better place, like depend because you're going to choose right. And we're all going to do that. And we're the majority. And we're coming to understand, like we are the police state. It can only happen if, if we participate. And because we're even aware of that, we weren't aware of that three years ago. We were all caught off guard and we weren't aware. So if you're not even aware that actually you're the one deciding, are we locked down? Are we, you know, having to show identity papers? Are we divided into different classes because the government wants us divided so they have power over us? Well, we weren't even aware we should be asking those questions of ourselves. And now we are. Like, do you see how much more powerful you are already? Because you're aware. And more and more people are, are coming aware and understanding we all act the same if we believe the same. So none of us were acting unreasonably. Let's forgive each other. We, we've been on different sides. And we can disagree. That's okay. My gosh. Like, who knew? Not everyone agrees. People have different points of view. Wow, that's a revelation. We can have different points of view. This is my 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 closing would just be we have such good things coming. You know, stay the course. Excellent. I I couldn't agree more. It feels like the tide is finally turning. And uh and now that we have all the information in the report, we have that as a, a very useful tool moving forward because the testimony, the evidence is irrefutable and extensive. Um, just one, one last thing. How can, just remind people how they can look at the report, get the information, uh, where should they go? Okay, so go to the National Citizens Inquiry website. So just nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. It's very easy to find the report. And um, <clears throat> I believe we even have it so that you can download it. If we don't, we're going to have that feature immediately. 
and very soon also you'll be able to order it, you know, um, as a Kindle book and uh, actually a hard copy just at, at cost. Like, you know, we just want it, we just want it out there, but we want you to be able to download it and print it off. Um, <clears throat> like we want you to preserve the record. We want you to have a copy. Like we want everyone to have a copy on their hard drive in case we get taken down. Cause you know, I, the truth is threatening to, to some groups. So, um, yeah, so it's very easy to find. Um, even the, don't be daunted by the fact it's long cause it's broken out into sections. So, you know, just pick a section or two and read them and then set it down and you'll actually find it, it because they did such a good job. It's in plain English. Um, it, it flows well, like it's, it's very readable. It's very common sense. And, you know, some of it, you might go, actually, I want to go watch that witness they just talked about. Like all the evidence that they rely on is there for you to see. So it's a very powerful tool. Excellent. And it is uh, broken down in a summary as well. It's, yes. uh, so it's, it's an easy read and very useful. And uh, Sean, I take my hat off to you and, and I thank you and all the volunteers. Mm -hmm. There's so much work into this. Um, this is obviously really just the beginning. Yeah. Like I think we have to understand, like I'm a, I'm the guy that now seems to be like, I was in front of the camera during the hearings and on, but it, it like there, we don't even know how many volunteers, like it was it 1500. Was it more like, because people just took things into their own hands. Like this, this was you, right? Like, so, I mean, I'm just humbled by what people did, you know, and I'm just one of the people that did things. So it's what's so neat about this is it's really a coming together um, of citizens just making something happen. Excellent. Sean Buckley, thank you so much for joining us on the program again this evening. Appreciate thank it. you, Rick. FreedomReporters.com. That's FreedomReporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. And another big thank you to Sean Buckley and all those volunteers for all the work that they've done. It is making a big difference. They did, with that NCI process, give voice to the voiceless. And it really is just beginning. And thank you 
very much to Kathy from Espanola for the Christmas card and the donation. Thank you very much, Kathy. That's very kind of you. I appreciate the, uh, the kind words as well. It means a lot. Thank you to everybody who has been uh, supporting the channel with donations and uh, messages and sending news tips in and sharing videos and links to important information. You are all actually part of the Maverick team, Maverick family. You're all citizen journalists around here. In other news, Israel has just blown up, destroyed an underground city in Gaza. This is reportedly the, was the main headquarters for Hamas. And we have video of what has just happened there. This may be disturbing to some, so I just caution you before I run this. This is uh, pretty devastating. Here it is. That whole area, that whole section, an underground network of tunnels. Huge. Obliterated. So they're calling that a subterranean terror city. That's the way the uh, the Israeli forces are describing it underneath central Gaza city square. They say that is where the plot was started to toward the October 7th attack. They, uh, the IDF says they found terrorist infrastructure, their words, underneath Palestine Square with long, lengthy tunnels connecting hiding places, offices, all of it uh, being used by senior Hamas leaders. And that footage comes from the IDF to put that into um, a proper frame for you. They are also saying that approximately 600 Hamas, and you know, they use the word terrorists, were killed in that operation. So that's a significant development tonight. And that is a fresh story. Still details emerging from that. This weekend, Toronto police say they are bracing for significant protests citywide. They are especially, I think, uh, says here they are anticipating more protests in shopping malls because of it being Christmas, people going out doing their Christmas shopping, and as we've seen, uh, there are ongoing protests outside Zara stores being targeted because of the name, which appears to be Jewish, 
and also because of an ad campaign that featured mannequins wrapped in material that resembled bodies in a similar fashion to what was emerging from Gaza in images of bodies laid out and covered. So they're saying that it was offensive. The executives of the Zara, of course, say that the ad campaign was created long before the war broke out between Israel and Hamas. But the protesters are having none of it. And we saw this extremely disturbing footage earlier this week from Toronto in one of the shopping malls outside one of those Zara outlets. And this guy's still under investigation. Girl, come here now, put your leg down on the floor. I'll lay you sleep. I'll put you six feet deep. I'll put you six feet deep. That's a, that's a threat. That's a death threat. And we're seeing more of that kind of thing every day. It's not dialing back. Tomorrow, Toronto police making a statement saying that they are expecting, again, big protests in Toronto tomorrow. Toronto is a major city in, you know, major Canadian city. That's a hub for protest activity. And brace yourselves. So if you're out there tomorrow, Christmas shopping, just be careful. Stay safe. Justin Trudeau is uh, celebrating Christmas too. In fact, he'll be going to Jamaica next week on a family vacation over the holiday break. He's going to be spending time in Jamaica with his estranged wife, Sophie, and their kids between December 26th and January 4th. That is making headlines largely because of the strange relationship he now has with his wife, ex-wife, estranged wife, Sophie. When they announced that they were splitting up, they did say that they would be from at times back together and would be seen in public together as a family. And, uh, you know, they, they have to, uh, they have kids to raise, like uh, like other people with families. Trudeau's also warning that, you know, some people are wondering how much that's going to cost taxpayers. Because um, everywhere he goes, he needs that security team, especially Trudeau. Not the most popular guy these days. And yet Trudeau is warning that if Donald Trump wins the 2024 U.S. election, it could harm the effort to fight climate change. He made that statement in an interview today. He, uh, he was making reference to Trump's statements that if he's elected, um, we'll be drilling for oil and using that oil to fuel the economy again. 
And as we all know, when Trump was in office, we did reach, or the United States did reach, energy independence because so much oil was being produced on his watch. Now, not so much. And that's not sitting well with Trudeau, and it's not sitting well with, it didn't sit well with, with Biden, whose Inflation Reduction Act is in full swing, and that is all tied right into that auto industry stuff that I was referring to earlier tonight, which threatens, really, the, the health of the economy in the long run if they don't get it right, and it's already not going well. And as for Trump, well, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that it will not immediately take up a plea by special counsel Jack Smith to rule on whether Trump can be prosecuted for his actions to overturn the 2020 election results. So this issue will now, in the end, be decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit which has indicated that it will act quickly to decide the case. Special counsel Jack Smith has cautioned that even a rapid appellate decision uh, might not get to the Supreme Court in time for review. And final word before the court's traditional summer break. So there is some urgency to this. We only have 11 months until we until people cast their ballots in the next presidential election. So Biden may not be around that much longer. We've got another year. And we'll see where it goes. Smith uh, has pressed the Supreme Court to intervene over concerns about the legal fight over the issue uh, that could delay the start of Trump's trial Um, Now it's scheduled for March 4th, beyond next year's presidential election. So U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin has put the case on hold while Trump pursues his claim in higher courts that he is immune from prosecution. And uh, Chutkin has raised the possibility of keeping the March date if the case promptly returns to her court. Anyway, these are all, this is all pushing dates around. Um, don't read too much into that at this point, would be my assessment. The important thing is what happens during the actual trial and how far that gets. And, you know, dates are important because of the election coming up, but we need a little more time to kind of let this stuff play out. I don't know how much weight to give any of this because I think so much of it is just political theater. And, you know, the other big thing is, first of all, this ruling out of Colorado that is going to keep Trump off the ballot in the primary. That, that's playing with fire. And now Republicans are pushing back because we have three Republican state lawmakers who are drafting legislation to remove President Joe Biden from ballots in Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. This is uh, being reported tonight by Breitbart. Here, I'll show you what what they've come up with. They're saying this is an exclusive report 
So we will give them credit, of course. So here's the Breitbart report right here. As you can see, Republicans drafting bills to remove Joe Biden from ballots in Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania. They say if Biden is removed from the ballots, the president will have difficulty winning the Democrat primary and presidential election. Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania are vital swing states. The three state representatives who are drafting the three bills are Pennsylvania, Representative uh, Aaron Bernstein uh, from Georgia, Char Charlize Bird, and out of Arizona, Arizona rather, Corey McGar. The state representatives' aim is to fight back against the Democrats' so-called lawfare used to attack former President Trump. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled Tuesday in a 4-3 opinion that the United States Constitution's insurrection clause blocks Trump from appearing on the state's presidential ballot. He, of course, is going to appeal that with his legal team. We are hearing pretty convincing arguments, especially from people on the conservative Republican side, that Trump's appeal will likely be, be successful in the face of a court decision that is highly politicized, obviously. So these politicians, these Republicans, have released a statement saying, we are joining forces to introduce legislation to remove Joe Biden from the ballot in Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. The absurdity of radical Democrat judges removing Donald Trump from the ballot in Colorado will be a stain on the American political system for decades. By their very own interpretation of the law, Joe Biden is 100% not eligible to run for political office. Democrats, insane justification to remove Trump can just as easily be applied to Joe Biden for his insurrection at the southern border and his alleged corrupt family business dealings with China, they continued. Colorado, they say, Colorado radicals just changed the game and we are not going to sit quietly while they destroy our republic. To be clear, our objective is to showcase the absurdity of Colorado's decision and allow all candidates to be on the ballot in all states. They go on here and say, to do that, we must fight back as Republicans against the communists currently running our great country. Republicans, it says here, were immediately incensed by the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. Many floated ideas to block Biden from various state ballots. The story goes on, but you've got it. You got her, Pontiac. I wish there were still Pontiacs made. I miss Pontiacs. You know what else I miss? I miss the old days of playing hockey when I was a little kid. And, uh, man, the game has changed for kids today. You know, um, out in Newfoundland, in a community there, minor league hockey, they are doing away with game-ending post-game handshakes. You know, that was the thing. Every time you played a game, the end of the game, you'd all come and line up and skate by the other team and, you know, fist bump or shake hands to show good sportsmanship. Well, I guess out in Newfoundland, things get heated after games sometimes. So it's resulted in some fighting 
So they're doing away with the uh, post-game handshakes. And uh, soon they're going to be replacing them with pre-game handshakes. Just flipping it the other way around. Starting the game with the handshake instead of after. Before tempers flare. I'm not so sure it's going to work, especially if you have two rival teams. And as the old saying goes, what is it? Yeah, I was uh, I was tuned in to watch the uh, the fights in case a hockey game broke out. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's not, especially in the minor leagues, it's not not really funny at all to see that kind of stuff. <clears throat> And this would almost be funny if it wasn't so absurd. But you can't make this stuff up. Here's a tweet tonight from the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, <laughs> Pierre Polyev, who's pointing out the absurd nature of this government program designed to cull deer from parks. And this, this stuff is ridiculous. I mean... This has been going on, this kind of stuff, for a long time. It says here, Parks Canada says 84 deer killed in an $834,000 cull using a helicopter. So these, they were paying guys from other countries, apparently, to come in and shoot deer from helicopters in parks to manage the herd size at a cost ultimately of about $10,000 per deer. All this while the government is pursuing gun control for hunters. And as Polyev points out, if they had just let the hunters go in and, and do this, they would, have, they would have done it for free. They would have done it for the meat. I don't know. You just, you can't make this stuff up. Um, it is very true. Now, I mean, I also know that if you go into some parks and there are a lot of people around, they, they're not really, they don't really want to, uh, have this stuff done with just hunters going in because of safety reasons, but largely this kind of thing could be done with hunters. Um, yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it's that time of year, it's Christmas and it makes people reminisce. I, I'm, I, I, I guess this time of year, we all kind of wish we could be kids again, you know? Um, and it just makes me, makes me yearn for the, for the good old days, like the 1970s. So I was thinking about what, what were the hot Christmas gifts back in the 70s and 80s? When I was a kid, you know what I wanted more than anything? And I got it eventually. Slot car sets. You guys play with slot car sets at all when you were kids? I love those. I still have a slot car set around here. I haven't set it up in years. Um, I bought it for my kids when they were young. <laughs> Merry Christmas, kids. Slot cars. <laughs> you really wanted them, didn't you, for Christmas? <laughs> oh man they wanted video games but they loved the slot cars we set up a big track in the basement on you know sheets of plywood and stuff 
Um, that was years ago. Still have all the track around here in storage, but I just, I just remind, it reminded me of this Aurora AFX racing. And uh, so I just wanted to run this just to reminisce a little bit. How do you put together a thoroughbred? You build from the ground up with super fat race tires for quickness, light chassis for handling, big motor for big muscle. That's how you come up with thoroughbreds like these. Brand new Aurora factory experimentals. AFX. Cars that take a little getting used to. You've got to get used to the way they accelerate when you hit the trigger. To the way they slow down when you let off. See, AFX cars don't just run around a track. You drive them with your pistol grip power stick. And when you get good enough, you race them. And AFX action doesn't let up, because your power pack plugs right into the wall. You can collect all the AFX cars, separately or in racing sets. AFX sets come with two cars, track, power equipment, from the model motoring division of Aurora. We're for real. Wicked. <laughs> oh, those are the days. Yeah, those are the days. That, And then, you know, video games started to come in and we had like Pong. Yeah, that was something. Come a long way since then. Now we've gone from Pong to AI may take over the world and kill us all. And a massive digitized humanoid genocide. Global depopulation. Better get jacked in now so you're as smart as the uh, computerized AI life forms that are being formed by the, the crazy, uh, insane wacka jobs out there. Uh, or we could all just go back to the 1970s and get ourselves a KTEL record selector. Remember these things? Everybody needed one of these. Are you fed up with constantly searching for the records you want? Are you tired and frustrated from always straightening out your LPs? Now with KTEL Record Selector, this will never happen again. To choose your favorite music, tilt the first record forward. The others follow automatically. Pick your selection when it appears. To choose more LPs, lean the next record forward and wait for your choice. The Record Selector is a new space-age design for selection and storage of records. Fingertip control regulates the speed of Record Selector. To replace the records, tilt the first record forward. Record Selector, with a mind of its own, will automatically stop where the LP was taken from. End awkward selection and storage of LPs with Record Selector. Attractively finished in a gift box. KTEL Record Selector, only $3.99. $3.99. Merry Christmas. Now, there's something that uh, would make a great Christmas gift. And, you know, vinyl records are making a comeback. Yeah. They're making a comeback. Uh, more popular now than they have been in a long time. Turntables. You can buy them at the Best Buy. And probably, I don't know if you get them at Walmart or you can get them online. There are specialty shops. There's a guy just downtown here who has high-end hi-fi equipment yeah in fact i've got some big old hi-fi speakers right over there i just need the uh the amp and all the other stuff to go with it but boy those were the days makes you yearn for yesteryear and that's 
largely what Christmas is all about too. I think sometimes when people think back to those, those days long gone, we get a little misty, maybe even depressed sometimes because we, we miss the things that we had, but you know, that interview tonight with Sean Buckley, I think he, I think he's right on the money, you know, um, you have to pull, we have to pull ourselves out of the negative, focus on the positive. We've, we've got forward momentum. Things are, you know, potentially looking better and things may get worse for a while, but we're winning. I think we're winning. The struggle is going to continue and it will never end. That's just the nature of, uh, of life. You know, we're always going to struggle against uh, uh, the other forces that work against us, the forces of darkness. But we're winning. And we're surviving. We're still here. And uh, this Christmas, you know, we've still got each other. We've still got our families. We've still got a lot to live for. And, uh, we need to remember that and pray for those who don't have as much as we do. And remember, it dices, it slices, it's the KTEL record selector. But wait, there will be more tomorrow night, <laughs> 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the flip side. Catch all you guys then. Love y'all. Thank you for spending the night here. See you tomorrow. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.